This is the intersection of faith and the culture. It's wall builders. We're taking on the hot topics of the day from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. And today's Foundations of Freedom Thursday, which means we're specifically diving into your questions. You can send those into radio at wallbuilders.com. That's radio at wallbuilders.com. Foundational questions about the Constitution, about the jurisdictions of government and the church and the family and how we do this. How do we do this well? We are Caesar in America. We the people. So if we're going to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, how do we do that well? A lot of the questions we get on Foundations of Freedom Thursday are specifically about that. How, how can I be a good citizen? How do I get my church to turn out good citizens? Uh, what do we do in education? How, how do we do this in government well? Whatever your question is, send it in today at, at radio at wallbuilders.com. I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution Coach, here with David and Tim Barton. Tim's a national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. David is, of course, America's premier historian, and you can learn more about us at our website, wallbuilders.com, today. All right, guys, let's jump into those questions from the audience. First one is uh, is about George Washington. Hey, wall builders, is it true that George Washington hated the bipartisan system? Is it the best? Is there something better that we could implement now? Um, and, and, and I'm guessing, guys, he's referring to the comments from the uh, farewell address, but I do hear this a lot, and, I, and I've never really known other than that those comments in the farewell address where people um, – uh, Got this from so David, you know his writings better than anybody alive. What what did George Washington think about? And, and I don't know if this guy's saying a two party system, uh, just partisanship in general, which or or what the particular angle is uh, for the questioner. But I know our listeners have questions all around this subject. Well, first off, let's let's deal with the principle that that it's good to have debate and good to have discussion. Um, and, and we go back to Proverbs eighteen seventeen. One side sounds good until you hear the other side. That's why you have a defense and a prosecution and a trial. Both sides bring out information. A jury is to listen to that information and make their decision. So having a contest, having some type of competition, that's not a bad thing at all. Well, and and Dad, you just mentioned, I was going to point out that competition is what we often advocate for. Competition makes things better. And if you don't have competition, then it's easy for, for somebody to get complacent. It's easy for them to do things that would not be right. And sometimes competition helps expose some of the weakness of the other side and George Washington certainly was not against competition. Uh, however, I don't have a feeling that's where you were going. Uh, would it be to suggest that Washington did not want competition. Yeah, what he talks about in the farewell address is not political parties, but he talks about having a love of a political party more than a love for your country or for the Constitution or for the right principles. And so the difference is not that he opposed a two-party system or that he opposed parties because he did not. He had parties within his own administration. Uh, his, his secretary of, of the Treasury was a leader of the Federalist Party, and his secretary of state was a leader of the Anti-Federalist Party. And it was good to have those discussions in the cabinet, to be able to push back and forth and have different viewpoints. But when you get to the point where you love the Anti-Federalist Party or the Federalist Party more than you love the principle being discussed, when winning and losing becomes more important than the principle— that's where the problem comes. So over the course of American history, I do not know of a single time when we did not have parties of some kind. Now, we'll point out that in James Monroe, at that point, the other major political parties had fallen apart. They'd coalesced into one party. Uh, the Federalists really had put themselves out of business. The Anti-Federalists, the only party left nationally. But even that, there were differences among the Anti-Federalists. They had factions within their own party. 
So there's always going to be factions in Christianity. There's always going to be denominations. We may agree on 99% of the stuff, but we're going to have some disagreement somewhere. And that always goes. But what Washington talked about is not having a love of party above a love of principle. And by the way, it's really good to know the principles and then debate the principles rather than the beliefs of the parties. So going back to constitutional principles is what Washington was pushing for. And really what he was arguing is one of the challenges we've seen in the culture today where, for example, in some of the major inner cities, everybody's a Democrat or at least all of the leadership, right? All the political leaders in these major cities are Democrats. And how are these cities faring? There's an increase in violent crime, right? Murder is like unprecedented rates right now. There are so many major issues in these cities, but people continue to vote Democrat. Why do you love the party more than the principle? This is one of the challenges that Washington was referring to, that that we need to make sure that we don't just think, well, they're Democrats, so we want to vote for them. Well, they're Republicans, we're voting for them. Well, right, they're constitutional party. They're, they're libertarian. They're whatever it is. You should not vote for someone just because of the label, just because of how they identify or just because of what team they are on, you should be more concerned about the principles. You know, guys, we've talked about this in in previous programs, but genuinely, if it came down to a Republican and Democrat running for office and one of them is pro-life, one of them is pro-marriage, one of them is pro-religious liberty, one of them is pro-Israel, right? One of them is is, is pro-capitalism, free market enterprise, and, and the other one's not, well, I don't care who's the Republican or Democrat. I care who is correct on these issues and these principles. And if it happened to be the Democrat, I would vote for the Democrat because the principle is more important than the political party. We don't vote for someone just because of what party they are uh, affiliated with. Although, and, and I'm saying that this is like the big picture issue we understand right now. And there is such a big chasm between the political parties right now. And if you look at the parties, There is only one party that does believe in traditional marriage, although that's even a little questionable with some Republican leaders. There's only one party that believes in the value of life and wanting to protect unborn life. There's there's only one party that seems to believe in religious liberty and biblical values. Only one party that seems to want to be the friend of Israel. This is something that is, is pretty clear politically now, but with it being said... If Republicans change position and Democrats change position, I'm not going to stay with the party that no longer is supporting any of the right positions. We support principles more than party. That's what Washington was talking about. And let me let me literally read you that part of his farewell address. And this is where people sometimes read it and say, oh, he's against political parties. Listen for two two phrases, two words here. One is the baneful effect. So baneful is horrific, terrible. And the other thing, he talks about the, quote, spirit of party, not party, but the spirit of party. This is what he says. He says, let me now take a more comprehensive view and warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. This spirit, unfortunately, is inseparable from our nature, having its root in the strongest passions of the human mind. It exists under different shapes in all governments, more or less stifled, controlled, or repressed, but in those of the elective form, it is seen in its greatest rankness and is truly their worst enemy. Now, imagine that. A guy who's fought enemies for his whole life says, the worst enemy I've ever faced is the spirit of party. He said, this is the worst enemy. He says, it's truly their worst enemy. He says, the alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetuated the most horrible enormities is itself a frightful despotism. So what happens is, oh, you beat us, so now we're going to beat you. We're not talking about the issues anymore. We're not talking about what's right or wrong. Democrats have to be Republicans. Republicans have to be Democrats. No, no, no. The ideas are the most important. It's not who wins and, and, and who loses. 
And so he, he goes on, and it's all about the spirit of party and the baneful effects of the spirit of party. I am an active Republican because I think every citizen needs to be involved in some party because that's where you have an influence on the rules and who the candidates are and et cetera. But I am not a lover of Republicans more than I'm a lover of the Constitution or lover of the principles. And so whether you're a libertarian or green or whether you're a Democrat or anything else, use that party as a vehicle to get the best people in office and don't get into party revenge that you guys won the election of 2020. So we're going to win 2024. No, you go for the right people and the right principles. That's what Washington's talking about. You know, as you guys are describing that and, and talking about, it, I couldn't help but think, you know, f- from a th- from a theological or even just a a sectarian perspective, it's 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 similar, right? Like we shouldn't say, well, if I'm a Pentecostal or I'm a Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian or whatever, I'm not going to have discussions about the Bible with anybody from any other faith. We must have civil discourse and be willing to have those discussions. It's the same thing with party. It's the same thing with our. Uh, our communities, being able to have that iron sharpening iron, that civil discourse is absolutely necessary to keep us from going to civil war. But that civil discourse does not mean that we aren't partisan in some way, meaning in terms of we have a particular party that we are working within because it best espouses our values. And a party is nothing but a car, folks. It's nothing but a vehicle. It depends on who's driving it. It's one reason that that we are so involved uh, in a particular party is because we know that it can be a force for good if the right people are running it. And our next question is about the Supreme Court. How can we prevent the Supreme Court from being packed? Recently, the left has been entertaining the idea of packing courts. What can we do? And of course, guys, they're referring to uh, Joe Biden has talked about that a lot, that he would love to pack the court and add more to the court, even though he said, I don't know, 150 years ago. Okay, wasn't that long ago. It was about 40 years ago when he uh, and literally I think it was 40 years ago when he was in the Senate. He said that FDR, what did he call it, was boneheaded. That was his word, was boneheaded for for trying to pack the court. Uh, But a lot changes in the decades, and a packed court helps the Democrats, so I could see why he would want to do it. But how do you stop it from happening? The Constitution gives the authority to Congress to determine how many justices are on the Supreme Court and how many judges we have in the entire federal system. So it's Congress who decides whether there is a federal judicial system beyond the Supreme Court. All the Constitution requires is a Supreme Court, and it does not tell us how many justices. It does not tell us if there have to be court of appeals or federal district courts. That's all up to Congress. So everything on this comes back to Congress. The judiciary was deliberately designed so that it could not create itself, could not operate itself, that it could not control itself. It's the legislature that does that. So the best way to keep from packing the court is to elect people to the House and the Senate and the presidency that will not pass a bill to pack the court or sign a bill to pack the court. Uh, This literally comes back to we the people. If we don't want the court packed, that's in our hands because we'll be the ones who choose the senators and the representatives and the president who would pack the court. If we don't want that to happen, then get involved in elections. And this goes back to the previous question to get involved in the process as well. Because the process is where you can start choosing the candidates you will vote on. If you don't get involved in the process at the party level, all you're going to get in November is a choice sometimes between the bad and the worst. Sometimes it's between good and bad, but sometimes between the bad and the worst. But if you wanted to definitely have a good choice there, you get involved in the party system, the primary system, move that forward. That's the best way to stop court packing. And guys, just a, if I could, a point of personal privilege, uh, Mr. Speaker. Um, you know, I'm I'm okay with having more Supreme Court justices. I actually think it would be healthier to have not so much power. You know, uh, only divided between nine people. Um, so I would love to see us over time add more seats to the to the court. The problem with packing is when one president is able to add a bunch of seats to the court, 
and shift the you know the, the the philosophy or the direction of the court just through pure raw political power. And so right now in this environment, it's a very dangerous time to be doing something like that. But man, I, over time, I would love to spread that power out because man, you know we we just we lose our minds in America over one Supreme Court justice because it's it's outside its jurisdiction. It's doing things it shouldn't have ever done. It wasn't designed to make law, and it's been making law. And right now we've got. You know, some days four, some days five, some days six judges that don't want to make law and, and, are, and are giving constitutional decisions. Uh, we don't know how long that'll last. But anyway, just that thought for people so that they know it's not it's not we're not against adding people necessarily to the court. It's all about whether or not you're doing it for that terminology that our that our uh, listener uh, wrote about packing the court for the same reasons FDR wanted to do it. Uh, but David, exactly right. I mean, it's uh, the legislature is where that's got to stop, and we're the ones that get to decide who's in that Congress. Let's take a quick break. We've got a lot more questions coming from the audience. You can send yours into radio at wallbuilders.com. Stay with us, folks. You're listening to Wobble. Hey, this is Tim Barton with Wall Builders. And as you've had the opportunity to listen to Wall Builders Live, you've probably heard the wealth of information about our nation, about our spiritual heritage, about the religious liberties, about all the things that makes America exceptional. And you might be thinking, as incredible as this information is, I wish there was a way that I could get one of the Wall Builders guys to come to my area and share with my group, whether it be a church, whether it be a Christian school or public school or some political event or activity. If you're interested in having a Wall Builder speaker come to your area, you can get on our website at www.wallbuilders.com and there's a tab for scheduling. And if you'll click on that tab, you'll notice there's a list of information from speakers' bios to events that are already going on. And there's a section where you can request an event to bring this information about who we are, where we came from, our religious liberties and freedoms. Go to the Wall Builders website and bring a speaker to your area. We're back, our Wobblers. Thanks for staying with us on this Foundations of Freedom Thursday. Next question we're going to dive into comes from, get this, White House, Tennessee. Not the White House in Washington, D.C. This is a town called White House, Tennessee. Joseph sends us in. He said, recent. What would you do if we got one from the White House? <laughs> the White House. I would wonder who in the White House <laughs> yes. does that question. Which, which whistleblower just reached out to us? Yes. Yes, that would have uh, that would have definitely. That's why the city itself caught my eye on the on the email. Okay, recently I've heard David mention that recent polling shows the term "quote federalism" is not looked upon favorably. He further mentions that this is likely because most people don't understand federalism means decreasing the power of the federal government and increasing the power of the states. My question is about the early political parties in our country: the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. I've read that the Anti-Federalist warned that the Constitution didn't do enough to reduce the power of the federal government. Did the names of the parties reflect the correct definition of federalism? Can you please give a brief history of how the parties got their names? I enjoy the show, and thank you for all you do at Wall Builders. Joseph, thanks so much for the question. David and Tim? Yeah, well, I would start off by saying that they were both correct. Uh, the Federalists, when they argued what the Constitution did and did not do, they were correct. But the Anti-Federalists were also correct because where we are today is what they were afraid America would become that they, the federal government would be creating their own powers because there wasn't enough limitations. That's why, if you go back to the Constitutional Convention, there were several founding fathers who were there who participated in the convention but ultimately would not sign the Constitution. And actually, there were even many founding fathers who were adamant against ratifying the Constitution because it didn't give enough limitations to the federal government. Now, the Federalists said 
that there's plenty of limitations because the Constitution clearly explains the federal government can only do what's explicitly stated in the Constitution. So, so they, the Federalists argued they can't arbitrarily create their own powers. They can only do what we've told them here. And the anti-federalists, by and large, said, nope, we don't trust it. We know when you have a government that's unchecked, uh, that, that it can absorb more and more power. It will get out of control. It will create new things and new bureaucracies and agencies and do things it shouldn't do. Well, that's, that's what we have seen it become. And this was also something that even George Washington's farewell address, the, the reason he cautioned the American people the way he did was to make sure that there was accountability. And it's why when John Adams says that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people, it's wholly inadequate to the government of any other, it's because if we ever lost that foundation, our Constitution would not survive. And nonetheless, this is where in the ratification debates, it's where some states finally said they would ratify it only if a Bill of Rights could be added. And this is where you see the task of the first Congress adding the Bill of Rights. This was a concession to get enough of the... uh, anti-federalist people from from kind of that uh, political philosophy to side in what they kind of viewed as a necessary evil to understand that we needed a constitution, that they're going to support the constitution only if we can make sure we place more limitations on the federal government. So the federalists believe we need a big, strong enough government to do things that could not be done at that point. Part of the reason also for their understanding is once we separated from Great Britain in 1777, the founding fathers drafted the Articles of Confederation. Now, it wasn't ratified till the early 1780s, but it was drafted in 1777, and it became the the mock constitution they followed. And under the Articles of Confederation, it gave the the Congress the power to declare things, uh, but they had no enforcement mechanism. So they could say, we, we are going to pay people X amount of dollars. We're going to import uh, X amount of things uh, or these A, B, and C goods. And yet they had no money to pay for the importation, to to pay for the salaries, to pay for the raises, which is also why you see the frustration from so many in the military, from even founding fathers taking out loans in their own personal name to be able to pay for their own state militias and their own military because the Congress didn't have the power to do that. It was because of the lack of the power in Articles of Confederation that led founding fathers to go more of the Federalist position and say, we have to, the government has to have some powers. If they don't have power, then they, they can't do anything, and then that's not an effective government. But this is where the debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, ultimately both of them were right to some extent and some capacity. Although where we are today certainly vies more for the accuracy of the Anti-Federalist position of a unrestrained, out-of-control federal government that is abusing the rights of the people. One of the things you'll find back then, and we talked about this earlier in the program, that George Washington put Federalists and Anti-Federalists in the same cabinet. And you'll find that they had a whole lot of agreement. You will not find disagreement over the fact that the Constitution gave 17 enumerated powers to the federal government. So only in 17 areas can the federal government operate. Nobody disagreed with that, Federalist or Anti-Federalist. Now, today, there would be a massive disagreement between the two primary parties over what the federal government can and can't do. If you told Democrats the federal government is not allowed to get involved in education, they would say, yeah, it is. And Republicans would say, no, here it is in the Constitution. That is a state issue. It is not a federal issue. So in Washington's day, both parties agreed that there were only 17 things the federal government could do. Now, within that is where you started having the debates of the Federalists versus Anti-Federalists. For example, you have the, the Constitution that talks about how the federal government can coin currency and money. And so Alexander Hamilton says, well, we need a a federal bank, a national bank, to be able to handle the money of the federal government and to be able to handle the currency distribution, et cetera. And that's where Thomas Jefferson said, no, we don't need a national bank. We got state banks. We don't need that. 
Now, wait a minute. Currency and, and, and banking, and currency and, and creation of money and handling money, that is a federal responsibility. You can still have state banks, but it's the federals that have to do the standard. And so as a result, you had state banks that, that got into creating their own currency, their own money. By the time of Andrew Jackson, there were thousands of different kinds of currency in America done by local banks. That's a problem. That's supposed to be a federal issue. So that's where they got in disagreements over things like that. And then when, when literally when Thomas Jefferson wanted to do the Louisiana Purchase, Jefferson said, man, Louisiana Purchase is not in the Constitution. I don't think I can do that. And James Madison, who's an anti-federalist, said, yeah, but having federal territories is in the Constitution. This is just another federal territory. So the debate wasn't over what we're having today on how big the federal government should be. It was what can you do within those 17 powers? And that's where that's where it was. And it's interesting that when you get to Thomas Jefferson late in life, uh, some two years before he died in 1824, at that point, we had become a very partisan nation where we loved our parties. And as came out in the election that he had with John Adams, uh, the people that backed them both loved their parties more than they loved the principles. And that was one of the most unscrupulous elections in American history. And so it didn't take people long to ignore what Washington said. They came back to it later. But for a while, they forgot. And in, in that point of having that intense partisanship, Jefferson had come to the conclusion by 1824 that, look, there's always going to be one party that thinks the people are not smart and that the government is smart. And, and therefore, they're going to give all the power to the bureaucrats and, and all the agencies, et cetera. And, and they just don't trust the people. And that's really what it's become since about 1824 is you have a party that doesn't trust the people and that party that says, no, we trust the people. We want them doing more. And the other says, no, the, the government is filled with the experts and the experts need to do it. So Jefferson really, really pretty much called the party stuff. But back in that day, Federalists and anti-federalists did not disagree on what the Constitution said they could do. So the concept of federalism was different to them than, than tying it to federalist or anti-federalist. Federalism meant the line of jurisdiction between the states and the federal government, not the way over which you viewed the Constitution, but what can the states do, what can the feds do. And so federalism, because both parties back then agreed on what the federal government could do, Federalism meant 17 things belong to the federal government. Everything else belongs to the people. And so that's that's the discussion they had then. Our problem today is we don't understand those 17 things. And so when we hear Federalist, Anti-Federalist, we think it means a greater growth of federal government. It doesn't. It means a discussion over 17 areas that are limited to the federal government's domain and everything else to the state's domain. People agree with that. They just don't know what it means. Stay with us, folks. You're listening to Wobble. This is Tim Barton from Wall Builders with another moment from American history. The Second Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees to every individual the right to keep and bear arms, has been targeted for years now by those who are determined to dismantle the individual right to self-protection. Opponents argue that only the militia, the military, and law enforcement are to have and use firearms. But those who wrote the Second Amendment strenuously disagreed, including founding father Richard Henry Lee, a signer of the Declaration, a president of the Continental Congress, and one of those who actually framed the Second Amendment, he declared, to preserve liberty, it is essential that the whole body of the people always possess arms and be taught alike, especially when young, how to use them. For more information about Richard Henry Lee and the history of the Second Amendment, go to wallbuilders.com.
We're back here. Wobbleders, thanks for staying with us on this Foundations of Freedom Thursday. Speaking of foundations and getting some good, strong foundations and some key leaders out there, such as teachers, young people, pastors, legislators. Wobbleders has all kinds of programs coming up this summer. Uh, Tim, you got a full summer w- with the teachers, with the student leadership program. I mean, all the different things. Give us a quick preview on what's coming up and what folks still can get into. Yeah, also including Patriot Academy in that mix yeah. as well. Uh, so certainly as we look for the uh, the, the quickly approaching uh, conferences and sessions we have going on, we have pastors conferences in April and September. And this is where we're, again, finally, thank the Lord, going back to Washington, D.C. Uh, on Tuesday night, we do a, a special private tour of the U.S. Capitol building, showing some of the spiritual heritage there. On Wednesday, we have the opportunity to have uh, private and unique conversations with several members of Congress and senators and just hear what's going on, hear from their heart. During the summer, we have our our, our leadership training program, which is our, our summer institute is what we're calling it uh, for 18 to 25 year olds. For So for students really who have finished high school, who are kind of maybe in that college area, maybe just out of college and, and are young adults. And we want to give them a foundation of truth, truth from both a, a biblical Christian perspective, but also the truth of American history. How do you engage in culture that is blatantly lying about the history of our nation? We also do things in this very similar regard for teachers as so many history teachers now are having to deal with books and curriculum that is completely historically incorrect, we take them back and show them original documents. We walk them through the history of America, even the history of education, and show them where education shifted and how to get back to kind of the earlier version, that one-room schoolhouse version of American history, and we are producing such different results. So there's so many opportunities for people to be engaged, and maybe if, if you're not a teacher, if you're not a student, you're not a pastor, you can help sponsor a teacher or student or pastor to come be a part of this life-changing opportunity that will lay a foundation of freedom, of biblical truth and morality, and historical accuracy for future generations. And those are the programs that, that I am directly hosting and leading, but I actually get to speak at some of the Patriot Academies. And so, Rick, I know they're happening all over the summer as well. Yeah, you can you can get all the dates, folks, at patriotacademy.com. Just click on that button that says Leadership Congress. That's what we call those summer programs, young people all across the nation, state capitals across the nation, and then first week of August, that's our big one at the state capitol in Texas, and that one's for everybody. So if you're a constitution coach, you can come do a leadership congress. If you're a military veteran, you can do a leadership congress. And then young people 16 to 25, which means if you're over 25 and not military, sign up free for a coach, becoming a coach, and that means then you can come to leadership congress as well. So check it out today, patriotacademy.com and wallbuilders.com. Thanks so much for listening to Wall Builders. We stand undivided. Forever